Well, we can, <clears throat> we can turn back to the passage you read, Isaiah chapter 53, and we can think together about verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 10 of this servant song is the start of the fifth and final section of the song. Started at verse 13 of chapter 52, where God the Father was speaking and recommending or commanding uh, people at the start to behold his servant. And I suppose uh, we could ask when we heard that, why should we behold him? And the answer to that question is given in the remaining <clears throat> statements of this song. And as we have observed throughout the song, there are two features that recur repeatedly. And these two features are uh, the sufferings of the Savior and his subsequent glory. And as the song is at pains to point out, we can't understand his suffering, nor can we understand his glory. Uh, both of them, <clears throat> his sufferings and his glory, are beyond human comprehension. already seen that in some ways with regard to his uh, physical sufferings when we're told for example in verse 2 that he had no former majesty to look at him and his, he had a sad expression, he was a man of sorrows and yet his face was marred more than any man and so on his sufferings were um, uh, so deep that no one can plunge them. I suppose there are medical dictionaries that can give some description of the sufferings that some people may go through. And if we were to read these descriptions, we would be overwhelmed. But there's no dictionary that can tell us what the sufferings of Christ were like. And reality is that um, we're never going to know. The glory that he has 
to some extent, we will appreciate it. Because if we are his, we will see it. But no human has ever seen the sufferings of Christ. The ones who were standing round the cross, they only saw his physical suffering. But none of them could look into his soul and see what he was enduring. I suppose there's a question to ask, but it's one that none of us can answer. And that question is, how deep is your soul? I mean, it is a question to ask, isn't it? Is it equivalent of a mile? Or the equivalent of 10,000 miles? Or the equivalent of a million miles? I mean, who can say? But the one thing we can say about the sufferings of the Savior's soul is that his soul was full of them. And um, it made him cry out, as we'll think about later on, but as we sang a minute ago, forsaken. However wide or however deep his soul went, there wasn't anywhere where he sensed God's presence. Instead, he just felt abandoned. Anyway, the song in these five sections comes at his suffering and at his glory from different angles. And here in verse 10, it comes at it from the will of the Lord. Because in this verse, both his sufferings and his glory are connected to the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the word crush means crush. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's his sufferings. The start of verse 10, then there's the end of verse 10. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We might think it should be the other way around. Because that's the normal way things happen, isn't it? Somebody gets prominence. They're, they're prosperous. But then, for some reason, they lose it. But it's very rare for somebody to be totally crushed and then to rise to the heights. 
although possibly there are some individuals who were very low before they rose to power. But none like Jesus, the one who was crushed, is going to become the man with the crown. And I just want us to think about that tonight. The will of the Lord. As we know, there's generally two different ways of looking at it. There's what's called his preceptive will, which is just basically his commandments. The commandments he states here and there throughout the Bible, and they're stated in order for us to obey them. Some of them are stated for everyone to obey them. But the reality with regard to that way of looking at the will of the Lord is that it may happen or it may not. I mean, that preceptive will of God was, uh, in, was the guideline, the requirement of every single person that breathed today. And yet, in countless places, nobody paid the slightest attention to it. It was completely that his will, his commandments were completely ignored. And that's his preceptive will. Sadly, it is a path of blessing, but people choose not to go down it. As Isaiah says somewhere, God speaking through Isaiah, Oh, that you had listened to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. And the statements in that particular announcement are true. There's no peace where there's disobedience. It's impossible. But where there is obedience to God's commands, there is a degree of peace and prosperity. That's not the will that's here. I mean, the, the will of God I've just described, it's kind of uncertain. No one knows if it's going to happen or not. And not, that's not only just the case with uh, people out there. It can also be the case with the people in, in here. It can be the case with me and with you. None of us can ever claim to have had 100% obedience for any period of five minutes in our lives. Something somewhere would have affected it, and that's just life. But it's good to know that God made a provision for our disobedience. And the provision that was given for our disobedience is the other aspect of the will of the Lord. Or part of the other aspect of the will of the Lord 
God's secret will or God's eternal will. What he put together, planned, whatever word we want to use, before the universe even existed. And in this secret will, this um, eternal will, there's no contribution by any human. Everything, everything that every human does is included in it, but they didn't volunteer to be in it. It's just there. Can't be avoided. If we do try to avoid it, the attempt we make to avoiding it just turns out to be part of it in the first place. And this will of the Lord, it will happen. And it will, it even included not only humans at our level, but this will of the Lord even included his own son. As the thing says, the verse says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When did he decide that would take place? It wasn't on the day it happened. It wasn't thousand years before then. Nor was it way back at the beginning of time when Adam disobeyed God and the announcement was made that someone would suffer because of this. That wasn't when the announcement, or maybe when the announcement was first made, but that wasn't when the decision was first made. It has always been God's intention to do this. And of course, it's hard for us to understand that. But there's lots of things in life we don't understand, isn't there? There's probably some objects up in the sky at the moment with several hundred people sitting in them. And most of the several hundred people sitting in them haven't a clue how the plane is flying. But the fact that they don't know how it happens doesn't prevent them from sitting there and being taken to their destination and so on. We don't have to understand everything to get the, to get the benefit of it. As a matter of fact, it's probably far better at times not to know how something works. And when it comes to the death of Jesus, well, the reality is it happened. And the hows and the whys and all that. We've got to make sure that these questions don't deprive us of the blessings of what took place. It was the will of the Lord to do it. And that, as I mentioned earlier, that describes both his suffering and his glory. I don't know what you make of this verse, verse 10, but... A Puritan called Thomas Manton said about verse 10, I do not find a verse in the scriptures that does yield more consolation and comfort to Christians than this one does. I, mean, I don't know if you find that interesting or not, but that was his opinion. 
I do not find a verse in the scriptures, and he knew a lot, but lots of verses. I do not find a verse in the scriptures that doth yield more consolation and comfort to Christians than this one does. Here is the Father's ordination, the Son's voluntary acceptance, and him becoming a sacrifice for sin. Here is the announcement of the gospel, the life of Christ, and the pleasure of the Lord. And he went on to say, Oh, what a heap of sweetness is here, if we had the skill to draw out the comfort of it. So Manton thought that this verse, from our point of view, is all about comfort. It certainly wasn't comfortable for Jesus, but from our point of view, it's all about comfort. So, every time we read verse 10, we should feel comforted, fortified. Comfort doesn't necessarily mean that we, we feel good, but it should mean that we feel strengthened. And there's, according to Manton, this verse is the best verse in the Bible to strengthen us. We don't have to agree with them. We may have our favorite verse ourselves somewhere else. But we'll look at it and see if it is a comfort everything it has. Just want to look at two things that are in it. Calvary and the will of the Lord. And the second one is the outcome of the cross. Now we can look at Calvary from different angles. <clears throat> and normally the way we look at it is uh, what Jesus was doing, that he, with great resolve, went to the cross, and there he suffered and paid the penalty for sin, and there we see his great love, the love that many waters cannot quench. We, we see that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. But you know, sometimes... There is a danger that we focus only on Christ. And when we do that, we may miss things that are very important. And this verse, as I think we can see, is highlighting what the Father did at the cross. It's very common today, even in Christian circles, to kind of diminish what the Father did. There is a phrase, cosmic child abuse, that is sometimes used to describe a verse like John 3 and 16. And we might regard that as appalling. 
But that is how some people regard it. The notion that God would bring about this degree of suffering for his own son. But as we can see, this verse affirms it very strongly. And it's not the only verse in the Bible that does that. I just want us to think briefly about three other verses that stress what the Father did. The Apostle John tells us in his letter that the Father sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation is not one you're liable to read this coming week. And it may be one you'll not hear from other people. But if you lived in the first century, it would be mentioned every day in the marketplace. Because every single person who lived in every community in the, in the world at that time would be very concerned about their propitiation. Because their concept of things was that they had to appease their gods. And that's what a propitiation is. A propitiation is offering a sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. And every day, people in the ancient world would go up to their temple and offer a sacrifice because they were apprehensive that they didn't do that, that the gods that they worshipped would do something strongly against them. But the big difference is that it was the worshippers that propitiated the god. It was the, the humans themselves that arranged the sacrifice. But the Apostle John, in the verse I've just quoted, says something that would have hit people like a thunderbolt. That God the Father sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. That the one who was most pleased with his Son, that the one who tore heavens open at the day of his baptism and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His son who had done nothing wrong in thought, word, or deed. That the real reason he was sent was that after having lived a perfect life, he would become the sin bearer. And while he was bearing sin on the cross, he would bear the punishment for sin. It's not that he would somehow or other carry our sins away in the sense that we carry a box around full of things that we don't want. It wasn't that he was handed this enormous parcel and said, carry that away somewhere. Rather, 
he was to become the bearer who would, who would have to cope with the punishment our sins deserved. And the fact that our sins were on Jesus didn't mean that somehow or other God was not so angry with them. God is always angry at sin. And when Jesus took our place on the cross, the place of his people, he was there as our substitute, and as our substitute, he had to endure God's wrath. We've no concept of God's wrath. We won't really understand it to, to a great extent until the day of judgment. But at Calvary, the only perfect man who ever lived discovered in his own experience what it meant to be the recipient of divine wrath. It was an awful experience. As I said at the start, words can't describe it. But it was showing something, as well as God's hatred for sin. It was also revealing in a way nothing else ever could, how strong was the love of God. Some people ask, how much do you love me? How much does God love? Well, go to Calvary. And there you'll see it. The Father sent the Son to bear the bearer of divine wrath. And of course, that's one reason why we should never regard our, our own sins as irrelevant. Okay, they're forgiven. But how are they forgiven? They weren't forgiven because some or other we say we're sorry. They're forgiven because Jesus suffered in our place. And we should always remember that. Whatever our sins have been, whatever they are, whatever ones we committed today, they met at the cross, and Jesus knew the pain of it. So the Father sent him to be the propitiation for our sins. Another verse that points to the Father's actions, his determination to do this, of course, is what Peter said in the day of Pentecost, when he pointed out to the penitents on that great day but this Jesus, although they had taken him by wicked hands and crucified him, it was all according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. And, you know, sometimes, say in a business, the person may have plan A, and if that doesn't work, plan B, and if that doesn't work, plan Z. See, and before you know it, you're at plan Z. But 
God only ever had one plan. Plan A. And if it doesn't work, there's no number two. And it's extraordinary to think of that, isn't it? But at the same time, it's worthy of great admiration. Because our catechism tells us, for example, that every one of our sins deserves God's wrath and curse. Every one of them. One is enough. Who can devise a plan to sort this out? Well, the only one that could was God. And the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were, if you want to use this kind of words, they were wholeheartedly involved in it as the only credible plan. And Peter, as he speaks to these individuals who had been shouting for Jesus to be crucified, and from a human point of view, the death of Jesus on that occasion looked like total anarchy. As all the various groups involved in it made their own personal decisions. And it looked as if there was nothing but confusion and malice and, and a lack of fairness and judge, judgment was missing and all that. Yet Peter says it's all part of God's plan. This is what the Father planned. And he's telling these participants in the death of, uh, literal participants in the death of Christ, he's telling them, you can be forgiven because of this plan. And if this plan had never happened, you would never be forgiven. But the Father's eternal plan. So surprising in its content, but so effective in its outcome. And it's not appropriate to suggest a round of applause, but it is appropriate to suggest, suggest an eternity of praise that we praise the Father for this incredible plan that he had the answer and he always had the answer and it never had to be modified or adjusted or anything it was just perfect our wise God Thanks be to God. And another passage that points to the intensity of it all, of course, is Gethsemane. And of course, Gethsemane is a place where the humanity of the Savior shows its reality. If Jesus had behaved in any other way, as he gazed at the cup that he was going to drink, if he had been a stoic and had said, oh, that's no problem, just give it to me. What would that have said about the reality of his humanity? 
a person with real understanding of what's at stake would be petrified at the judgment of God. And there's Jesus, the perfect man, the man with a fully balanced mind, who can work out exactly the pros and the cons of every situation. As he looks ahead a few hours, he doesn't say as a word to himself, it will soon be passed. Instead, he pleads in agony because his human nature hasn't got an omniscient mind. And we've always got to remember that. And from his, the depth of his human grasp of things, he cries if it's, he asks, but he cries if it's possible for this cup to be taken away. And when he gets the answer, no. As the perfect man, he accepts without hesitation. That we should admire the Savior in Gethsemane. He is still working out a righteousness for us. Every second he spends in Gethsemane has got something to say about our righteousness. And where we would have panicked. And where we would have concluded there's no hope, he had a totally different perspective. But he submitted to the Father's will. And he submitted, I'm quite sure, knowing Isaiah 53 by heart. When he made when he accepted the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And what lay ahead was awful. Yet the Father was willing to do it. And when we look at the cross, we should say, not only this shows how much Jesus loves us. But we should say this shows us how much the Father loves us. John 3 and 16. God loved the world. And the world there, the word world there means the confused, dirty world. It's not the world of the Grand Canyon of nice scenic pictures. It's the world of rebellious sinners. And he loved that world and gave his son instead. How much does God the Father love me? Calvary's got the answer. What was God the Father prepared to do so that all his children would be with him forever? 
how Calvary is the answer. And of course, by extension, we can say this is much how much the Holy Spirit loves us. Triune God working in harmony at the cross. There's chaos everywhere else. But there's no chaos in their plan. It's all working perfectly. The will of the Lord to crush him. There's no other way. And that leads us to think briefly about the outcome of the cross. And from this low point, when he makes his soul an offering for sin, when he is down as low he can get, from that, three wonderful things are going to happen. And they're listed there. First one is, he shall see his offspring. The second one is, he shall prolong his days. And the third one is, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his offspring. I mean, usually in everyday life, a person sees their offspring before they die. We know, sadly, there's occasions when a person may not live to see their offspring. But normally they see them before they pass away, they die. But here in Jesus' case, he sees them after he dies. He's going to be alive to see them, which of course means there's going to be a resurrection. As the resurrection is mentioned there in verse 9. He shall see them. When will he see them? Well, he'll see them all the time. He'll see them before they come to faith. He'll see them as they come to faith. He'll see them attempting to live the Christian life. You'll see them arriving in heaven one by one. You'll see them in the new creation. They'll all be gathered in his presence. Of course, this prediction about his exaltation is telling us that throughout the entire period, he never takes his eye off his people. Not from the moment of his ascension to the moment of his return it's almost as if he doesn't look at anything else he just looks at his people endlessly gladly satisfied no desire if we want to put it this way to look at anything else There's a great deal of certainty about it, of course, 
he shall see his seed. Psalm 22 tells us, doesn't it, that a seed shall serve him. The psalm of the suffering and the psalm of the glory. And that's part of the section on glory, that a seed shall serve him. And that seed will appear in every generation. And up in heaven today, what's Jesus looking at? As he gazed down on planet Earth, what's he looking at? He's looking at his people. He's our high priest. He sees our needs and he does something about it. He's our prophet. And he says, well, that person needs to be taught something. And he's our king and he's protecting us and guarding us through life. He knows every single thing that's happening to us at the moment. And if he follows them and he leads them through this world, and when they enter heaven, no doubt there's great joy in their experience as they enter heaven, but whatever heights they experience is nothing compared to the joy of Christ. I mean, every Christian on earth at the moment I mean, when were they ever within one foot of Jesus? It's a serious question. When was Jesus ever right beside you? I know he's there by the Holy Spirit. But the man at the center of the throne... When was he ever right beside you? From his point of view, hasn't happened yet. But one day it will. And when, if, if we're going to heaven, when we arrive there, he will see his seat. And then in the world to come, the eternal ages, the new heaven, new earth, whatever word we want to describe it by, the Lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall lead the number that no one can number to the fountains of living water. And like a good shepherd who looks after his sheep in the world of danger, but even in the world of security, he will gaze at his sheep. And this has been told for our comfort. Remember what Manton said? This verse is full of comfort. His days shall be lengthened. <laughs> of everybody else, however, however long they live, all that is said of them is their days are shortened. But of this amazing sufferer, after he has suffered, his days shall be lengthened. We sang about it in Psalm 21. He asked life of the Lord, and the Lord gave it to him, even length of days forever and ever. Psalm 89 tells us that when he becomes the king, his days will be as the days of heaven. 
His exaltation to the highest place in heaven includes endlessness. I mean, every earthly empire that's been in the past, people can say, that's when it started. And of all of them, they'll say, including the ones that are around today, that was when they ended. But his kingdom, there's no end. On and on and on and on and on it will go. It's happening just now. He's reigning on high, guiding all things. And then there's going to be the day when he returns. And there will be the day of judgment and so on. And he'll speak the new universe into existence, even as he spoke the first one. And then on and on and on forevermore. It's an extraordinary verse, this, isn't it? He shall prolong his days. Never end. And the third thing about his exaltation is the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know, sometimes we're overwhelmed by negativism. And because things are topsy-turvy and what we once took for granted is now turned upside down. We think that only chaos lies ahead. But we have to remember who's in control. And we have this assured promise, as far as his kingdom is concerned, that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There are sins around today in the 21st century. But the reality is the church of Jesus has never been so big as it is in the 21st century. Psalm 72. His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river, that's the Euphrates. It from the river shall extend unto our utmost end. The kingdom of Israel, the point of that reference is the kingdom of Israel went to the Euphrates and stopped there. But the kingdom of the greater than Solomon, that's as far as Solomon got to the Euphrates. But the real Solomon goes beyond the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And throughout it all, Covenant riches will flow from God. The peace of God that passes understanding. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The good shepherd leading his people through this world. All he does prospers. I mean, every earthly ruler would, lo would love that to be said about them. But the king of kings, it is said about him, everything he does prospers. And one day, as we stand at the end of history, we'll look back 
and that's all be written over it. All he did prospered. An amazing king of an amazing kingdom. Here we have an answer, we'll stop with this, but here we have an answer to the question at the beginning of chapter 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? Well, maybe nobody listened to Isaiah. And maybe not that many listened to Paul as he quotes the verse in Romans. But when we get to the end of the day, a number that no one can count, from every nation, kingdom, people, and tongue, all there, and all there because everything this king does prospers. And we are not to let providence diminish the promises. I mean, it's very important. We are not to let providence diminish the, pro the promises. His promises are yea and amen. So is Manton correct? Is this the verse that yields more consolation and comfort to Christians than any other? Well, we all have to answer that question ourselves. Shall we pray?